Hi, and welcome to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is Alexa, and joining me today is my co-host, Peru. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on this week's episode. I want to make a special shout out this week and introduce Gwen Lovstead, a final year medical student at McMaster who's joined our team as a senior editor. This week's episode is going to be super important for you guys, so feel free to replay any parts that might seem confusing the first time around. And just as we get started, a friendly reminder that this podcast reflects our views and not necessarily those of our institution, and that this podcast is not intended for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. All right. So in today's episode, we're going to be discussing one of the most important topics in anesthesia, and that is airway management. There's definitely a reason why airways are at the top of all resuscitation algorithms, and it should be your first consideration when evaluating a patient. Funny enough, the word airway is also part of the podcast name, so you definitely know it's worth talking about. So without further ado, here's this week's case. If you remember from the previous episodes, we were discussing a bread and butter surgical case with a 38-year-old non-obese female with no existing medical conditions and who is undergoing a laparoscopic hysterectomy. Because she's undergoing a laparoscopic procedure, this increases her aspiration risk. For this, she's also going to be given neuromuscular blockers. So, she'll need a fully secured airway with an endotracheal tube. Now, you go in, you're the medical student, and you do a preoperative evaluation. And if you'd like a refresher on the important components of this, make sure to check out our previous episode on the preoperative exam. But what you find when you do your assessment is that she has a Malampati score of 2, adequate cervical flexion and extension, a thyromental distance of 7 centimeters, full mobility at the temporomandibular joint, a mouth opening of three finger breaths, and has class 1 pregnathism, meaning that she could fully bite her upper lip with her lower teeth, which looks pretty funny but actually has clinical utility. Otherwise, you find that she has no loose teeth, nor does she have any caps, crowns, or dentures. Her anesthetic records from previous surgery indicate that she had a grade 1 cormac lehane view and that this view was obtained with direct laryngoscopy. All right, if that felt like a lot, you're not alone. There's a lot to unpack here in terms of assessing your patient's airway. And as a reminder, it's important to consider that none of those factors are incredibly sensitive or specific in predicting a difficult airway. So instead, it's really about using your clinical judgment and putting it all together as a collection of findings to figure out how you're going to manage your patient's airway. Overall, in this case, the patient's Malampati score, her thyromental distance being greater than six centimeters, her mouth opening, the fact that she does not have any restricted range of motion of her neck and that she can bite her upper teeth with her lower teeth, or rather her upper lip with her lower teeth, all suggests a relatively straightforward intubation. It's always a good idea to look at previous anesthetic records if available. A history of uncomplicated intubations are also reassuring, but need to be taken with the consideration that patient factors like weight and neck radiation can change. 
I know for one, personally, I always felt like I hit the jackpot when I'd be looking through a patient's previous medical records and I saw that they had a previous anesthetic record. Um, So super useful to look at that when you do the overall assessment of the patient. But before we get too excited about laryngoscopy and intubating the patient, what you really need to do first above and beyond all other things, is assess your ability to bag mask ventilate the patient. And I still remember the first time I was in the OR, this was in my undergrad, and what my staff told me at the time really stuck with me. The most important skill of an anesthesiologist is to be able to bag mask ventilate. Here I am seeing all these fancy machines, um, seeing art lines put in, um, seeing complicated airway management, and my staff is telling me the most important skill is bag mass ventilating. To be honest, I was taken a little aback. Um, I also thought at that point that bag mask ventilation was easy. Um, Fast forward a few years and I realized how wrong I was on that point. Yeah, totally. And I mean, hey, this is actually a fun fact. Although you probably wouldn't want to, you can technically bag mask a patient throughout an entire case. Now, obviously, there are risks that, you know, you wouldn't want to take, like insufflating the stomach, etc. But it definitely goes to show that bag masking a patient is a super vital skill. Now, going back to our case, in reviewing the patient's preoperative evaluation, a few important things come up in terms of assessing her ability to be bag mask ventilated. A common acronym that's used to remember the patient's factors associated with a difficult bag mask ventilation is BONES. B stands for beard. Next is obesity, no teeth, being elderly, or if a patient snores or has obstructive sleep apnea. Now, if we look at our patient in the context of that acronym, we see that she doesn't have a beard, she is non-obese, she's got a full set of teeth, She's fairly young and does not have any diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea and doesn't snore. And so with that being said, her preoperative evaluation is reassuring. So if it turns out that her airway is unexpectedly difficult, we should still be able to bag mask ventilate her relatively easily. And following the administration of the neuromuscular blocker, your staff may even ask you to bag mask ventilate the patient prior to intubation just to show that you can. And don't worry if you find that getting the perfect seal the first time is difficult. And I personally have little hands, so I've struggled with that. But practice makes perfect. To walk you through it, what you want to do is use what's called the e-grip. And if you were to pretend right now you're holding a mask, that would mean putting your thumb and index Um, in a C-shape over the mask, and your middle finger is on the chin. And lastly, your pinky is on the angle of the mandible. And remember, you want to lift the face into the mask, not squish the mask down onto the patient's face. And, And again, your staff will make this look super easy. But like I said, practice makes perfect, and you'll get there too. One thing to consider with bag mask ventilation is that it can introduce air into the stomach if you're bagging with too much pressure, and that can put a patient at risk for aspiration. To make sure you're not bagging with too much pressure, you can watch for the peak pressures on your monitor and make sure you stay below 20 centimeters of water, which is roughly the opening pressure of the lower esophageal sphincter. 
Something to consider here is that if you're having a really hard time bag masking your patient, make sure that one, you always call for help and have two hands extra on standby, and two, that you have an oral airway available. We'll get into this more next week, though, but don't forget these two parts. I'm really loving the anticipation for next week's episode. But okay, where were we for this one? So you know you can bag mask ventilate the patient. Great. And the time of onset of the neuromuscular blocker has just passed. So now it's the time you've all been waiting for. It's time to intubate the patient. And it's funny, actually. I remember one of my first times in the OR, when I saw the word apneic flashing in big letters on the monitor, I was like, oh boy, it means that the patient's got to be intubated right now. But it's actually important to remember that if you're doing everything right, the patient was actually pre-oxygenated, as we mentioned in the previous episode. And you should always do everything to maximize your chances of a successful intubation. And because you pre-oxygenated your patient, you've essentially bought yourself some time to make sure that you can intubate properly. Generally, in a healthy, fully pre-oxygenated patient, you have about seven minutes or so before they start to desaturate. And that number obviously decreases as patients get older, larger, and sicker. So for instance, patients with sepsis or hyperthyroidism might have what's called a hypermetabolic state, meaning that they use up oxygen more quickly. And so that time might go by a little bit faster than you might think. But in any case, you want to remain calm, take your time, and remember that the first step to a successful intubation begins with the patient's position. Remember our little airplane analogy? You can't really take off from the runway if your jet is facing sideways. And really, intubation becomes so much easier if the patient is adequately positioned. Did I mention position? Yeah, position. It's important. Don't skip that step. And to do that, put the patient in the sniffing position with cervical flexion and atlanto-occipital extension. What that does is it aligns the oral, pharyngeal, and laryngeal axes, which facilitates intubation. If you're a visual person like me, check out some diagrams online that will show just how position can align these axes. And if you're in the OR and you don't have access to Google Images, a quick way to make sure that a patient is properly positioned is to make sure that their ear is aligned with the sternum when you look at them from the side. And you can also help yourself out by making a ramp using some blankets. The other thing that you want to do in terms of position is making sure that the head of the bed is just right, which often means your head is at your the bed, sorry, is at the level of your umbilicus. And so with the patient well positioned, it's time to take the laryngoscope in your left hand, regardless of if you're left or right-handed. Don't be an idiot like me and put it in your right hand, and then everyone asks you what the heck you're doing. So that way, if you can use your left pinky to slightly retract your patient's lower lip, you can slide that laryngoscope right into their mouth. The choice of the laryngoscope blade depends on the patient's anticipated airway anatomy and generally an operator's preference, but typically you'll see what's called a Macintosh size 3 blade, or just a Mac 3, used for direct laryngoscopy. Once the patient's mouth is open, you can insert the laryngoscope with, remember, your left hand through the right side of the patient's mouth with the blade up and gently sweeping the tongue to the left. You're going to gently advance the blade and then gently sweep the tongue to the left. 
Keep doing that until you can slowly advance the laryngoscope right up until the point where the tip of it is seated in the vollecula at the base of the tongue. And once you're there, you can gently lift the epiglottis to expose the vocal cords. And if you're having trouble visualizing this, make sure to check out the show notes where we'll post a diagram that'll make the anatomy a little bit more clear. Now, an important tip that I received was to know your airway structures. For example, you should be able to know what the vollecula, epiglottis, vocal cords, epiglottic folds, and cuneiform cartilages look like. In this way, you can adequately describe what you're seeing to your staff during laryngoscopy. Not only can they help you with positioning based on what you describe them, it also helps build trust with your staff in that they know you're not just blindly inserting the laryngoscope and praying to somehow find the vocal cords or to not end up in the esophagus, but it lets them know where you are and that you've done your homework and know a little bit about the airway. And when you describe what you see, you should use the Cormac-Lehane classification, which is a scale of one to four. And this describes your adequacy of visualization of the cords. Again, anesthesia is all about communication. And by knowing your structures, describing what you're seeing, you're able to communicate efficiently with your staff. Another lesson I learned uh, during my clinical rotations, and this was after cranking back one too many times, is that that is not, and I repeat, not what you should do to visualize the vocal cords. What you want to do instead is have the handle of your laryngoscope at 45 degrees and lift the laryngoscope in a straight line along that angle. One of my staff described it as doing a bicep curl. And if you're anything like me and haven't gone to the gym in months, I can blame COVID, but really there's some laziness component to that too. Um, Another way to think about it is as if you're lifting the laryngoscope on an angle that is a straight line trajectory to where the wall meets the ceiling. Regardless of what method you use, it's important to remember that once your laryngoscope blade is in the vollecula, you lift upwards to lift the epiglottis and expose the cords and not crank backwards. And if everything has gone to plan so far, once you lift the laryngoscope, you should be able to see the vocal cords. If things don't go according to plan, which sometimes happens, and your view of the glottis is still obscured, You can ask an assistant, which is often like an OR scrub nurse or a respiratory therapist, to do my favorite maneuver called the burp maneuver. And that's basically where you apply backwards, upwards, and rightwards pressure on the thyroid cartilage. That'll help with intubation. I was just about to say, it does really make a difference. Yeah. With the cords in view, it's now time to insert the ETT with your right hand this time. So remember, laryngoscope in your left hand and tube in your right hand. And so when you're doing this, try not to change your position so that you don't lose your view. You want to make sure that you keep a direct line of sight to those cords at all times. You want to pass the tip of the endotracheal tube underneath the epiglottis and through the vocal cords. Visualizing the cuff of the ETT passing through the cords is actually one of the parameters by which you can confirm a successful intubation. 
And before you remove the laryngoscope, you want to note the length of the ETT at the patient's lips. If you go too deep, you run the risk of what's called an endobronchial intubation. The usual distance at the lips is roughly 21 to 24 centimeters in an adult male and 18 to 22 centimeters in an adult female. That's roughly three times the size of the endotracheal tube that you grabbed. So normally for an adult, you'll typically see a size 7.5 ETT. So multiply that by three and you'll get somewhere in between 21 to 24 centimeters. Once you're confident that the tube is in the right place, inflate the cuff with just enough air to create a seal. And if you listen closely, you might even be able to hear a leak. Now, with the cuff inflated, connect the endotracheal tube to the ventilator circuit. The second way to confirm correct placement of your ETT is by looking for an end tidal carbon dioxide concentration. Other things that you should also double check is looking for symmetrical chest rise. So again, making sure you don't have an endobronchial intubation looking for misting in the endotracheal tube, and auscultating the lungs bilaterally for breath sounds, as well as auscultating the epigastrium for evidence of air entry. Okay, that's a lot. You still with us? I promise we're almost there. So with all those things in place, the last thing to do is secure your tube in place with tape and to turn on the ventilator. This is especially important for patients who are positioned laterally or prone, or in patients where they might be put in what's called a Trendelenburg position. And these are situations where the tube has a higher chance of slipping out. And remember, every time a patient is repositioned, you have to recheck tube placement every single time. And to finish this episode, I'd like to reiterate that it's important to make your first attempt at intubation your best. It's a procedure that is incredibly stimulating and can lead the patient to go into laryngospasm if not done properly. So make sure to take the time to know your anatomy, get your equipment, use a non-forceful technique, and if at any time you think you need help, don't be afraid to ask your supervising resident or staff for assistance. No one will expect you to be an intubating rock star on your first go. And I can say I certainly wasn't. So be gentle in your approach and controlled and make little movements as you go. And have a low threshold to tell your staff, hey, I can't get myself a good view. Can you please take over? Asking for help is crucial for those at any stage, med student, resident, or even once your staff. And that's it. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you found it useful. Airway management is a really difficult skill. And describing it for you guys here doesn't really replace doing it on a patient, but we hope that you can use some of these tips that we talked about the next time that you're in the OR. Speaking of which, hopefully things get back to normal sooner rather than later because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And hopefully med students are allowed to intubate again. But again, that's it for this week. Stay tuned for our next episode as we jump into dealing with difficult airways. And also make sure to check out our website for the show notes. Tweet at us on Twitter at at Airwave Podcast and follow us on Instagram for any questions or suggestions. 
And as usual, a big thank you goes out to Dr. Nick Timmerman, Dr. Sean Jha, and Jordan Album, who are PGY2 residents at McMaster, along with Dr. Corlevani for supporting this project. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.